Our Father, we come once again, and, and how great it is to just continually bow before you. And now, Lord, having prayed for steadfast, we now trans, transition our hearts, Lord, to think about the Word of God. Lord, I pray that the words that are said this morning would be your words, that the truths that the Spirit of God would desire to implant deeply into our hearts and souls would find good soil, receptive soil, hearts that want to learn and to grow. Lord, this morning I pray you would convict us. I pray that you would comfort us. I pray that you would encourage us. I pray that the words that are heard this morning might sink so deeply into our souls that it changes us, not just in this moment, but that we walk out of here forever different and forever more like Christ. And it is in his name we pray, amen. One Christian organization did research on 150 countries in which Christians are persecuted for their faith. They did a snapshot analysis of a one-year period, and that period just ended just a little less than 12 months ago. I want to give you some of their numbers, and in all likelihood, these are very low estimates because accurate information is very difficult to obtain in a lot of cases. This is their best guess. And I do want to say this before I give you some of these numbers. It's important to understand that while we definitely make a theological distinction between biblical salvation which truly saves and deceptive pseudo-Christian religions such as Roman Catholicism which cannot save, the world doesn't make that distinction. And so in this rare instance, I'm going to use the term Christian to speak from the viewpoint of the persecutors. They view a Christian as anybody mildly associated with Christianity at some level. But this organization took these 150 countries, they reduced it down to the top 50 in which persecution is taking place and they focused their efforts there. In these top 50 countries... They estimated 245 million Christians are currently undergoing what they define as high levels of persecution. They created four different levels and 245 million are in the the highest level. According to their statistics, this represents a 14% increase from just a year ago. 4,136 Christians during that time period were killed for faith-related reasons This is almost certainly a very low estimate. Estimates from another source have it as high as 90,000 a year. Others go well over 100,000. 2,625 Christians were arrested and imprisoned without a trial and with no hope. 1,266 church buildings were attacked many times while people were in them. And in seven of the top ten worst countries, the primary cause of Christian persecution is Islam, Islamic oppression. And this comes as no surprise to us, but for the 18th year straight, North Korea ranks as the most dangerous place on earth to be a Christian. Now, for us, the obvious course of action is to do what we can to support and to help those believers in other countries who are suffering for the sake of Christ And I would like to take an entire message to talk about that. But there's something a little more pressing for us, and that is the fact that that we also have to deal with persecution. It's more subtle, 
but it's gaining ground quickly in our own nation, in our own culture. I would love to take a whole message dedicated to suffering believers elsewhere, and at some point I may do that. But in the meantime, you still have to live here. You still have to walk through your life. And so the issue of persecution isn't just a a distant, far-off idea that we don't have to deal with. I'll put it this way. It is a salvation issue. Persecution has to do with your status before God. The second Timothy says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All of us. Now, as we've been walking through John 15 and then shortly in John 16 to look at the idea of costly Christianity, that salvation is free in Christ, but it costs us to follow Christ, what we're going to see in our text today, John 15, 18 through 25, is that persecution is yet another marker of the true, genuine Christian, true, real faith. Now, this is where the easy believism camp, the free grace theology that we've referenced on occasion here, this is where they have difficulties. Because free grace theology says that you may make an initial profession of faith when you're seven years old, for example, and yet completely deny Christ later and still be saved. You know what this does, though? It calls into question what Jesus himself taught In Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the presence of persecution, according to Peter in 1 Peter 1, gives us assurance of salvation in what Peter calls the tested genuineness of your faith. And so there are some actual positive benefits to persecution. And in fact, our text this morning I want to present you some of these positive benefits. I'm going to walk through the text and examine those benefits as we go. But I want to do something a little bit different this morning. I want to give you some detailed examples of the persecution facing us at this moment in our own context. Not to get you upset. Not to get you to vote in November or anything like that. But really more as a test. And here's the test. Am I among those who desire to live a godly life in Christ and therefore I will endure persecution? Will I pay the cost of hateful persecution? And so we'll walk through the text. We'll walk through these examples and we'll sort of do them side by side. If you're a note taker, you can almost draw a line down the middle of the page and take notes on the two separate ideas. Well, to get to our text, Jesus is continuing to teach his disciples shortly before his arrest. And now he comes to a very sobering reality This is a reality check with them about what it means to follow Christ, to be identified with him. John 15, beginning in verse 18, Jesus continues, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. 
Let me show you seven benefits to persecution. Seven benefits to persecution, and then we'll put side by side some examples of persecution in our own context today. The first benefit of persecution, we'll just call this identification. Identification. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now we need to define a couple of terms here so we're all on the same page. The term world is used in the Bible multiple ways. When Jesus said, for God so loved the world, in John 3.16, we've made the case on other days that he is speaking specifically of the elect saints who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the world spoken of in John 3.16. But in this context, the world is the evil fallen system controlled by Satan and run by unregenerate people. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, that is Satan. The world resents you because your godly life condemns the world's sin. You expose the world as wicked. When Cain murdered Abel, it was because Cain couldn't stand the fact that Abel lived a life that was pleasing to God. 1 John 3.12 said, We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Make no mistake, the world does not look at you and admire you. The world loathes you because you cast a light on their darkness. We should define another term, hate. This is another word used multiple ways in the Bible. Sometimes it simply means to not prefer something. When Jesus said that the truly saved will hate father, mother, brother, and sister, he wasn't talking about emotional loathing. He simply was saying that the true believer will prefer Christ over even family. But here, in this particular context, hatred does speak of scorning and detesting something. The world has detested Christ and the world detests you. Now, while we often hear the call to identify with Christ, in this particular instance, and this is very moving, this is very touching to us, Christ is identifying with you. When he says, if the world hates you, this isn't giving the possibility that it might not happen. This is a definite condition. He's saying, when the world hates you, and he gives comfort. He basically says, just know that I went ahead of you. The world hated me before it hated you. He's identifying with us. He's saying, I've been there. I know what this is like. I know what you're going through. There's nothing that you will endure which Christ has not endured already. And we take comfort in that. He's identifying with us for our comfort that we take heart because he's already persevered. He's already won the battle and so shall we. Now, what's one area in which the Christian in our culture endures persecution? I think we have to start here. How about the, how about the arena of the Bible? We'll just start with the Bible. The Bible is the sole source of spiritual authority. No other spiritual source has any ground, any authority whatsoever. When somebody says, well, I believe this, the first question you ask is, based on what? And if it's any answer other than Scripture, then they have nothing to stand on. The Bible says, the Bible says what the world should be doing and shouldn't be doing. And the world hates this because the Bible contradicts the world. And when the Bible contradicts the world, then persecution rises the world hates the Bible and therefore hates those who elevate Scripture above human institutions. 
In 2003, David Limbaugh wrote a well-researched and an insightful book called Persecution, How Liberals Are Waging War Against Christianity. And he documented a growing pattern. And this is 16 years ago now. You can imagine how bad it is now. He documented a growing pattern of discrimination against Christians and Christian influences, particularly against the influence of the Bible. Now, it's rare that you can quote a politician with an accurate spiritual statement, but our own vice president said in a commencement speech just this year, quote, some of the loudest voices for tolerance today have little tolerance for Christian, traditional Christian beliefs. So as you go about your daily life, just be ready. Because you are going to be asked not just to tolerate things that violate your faith, you're going to be asked to bow down to the idols of popular culture. Very true. The Bible gives divine propositional truth, which flies in the face of the secular humanism which dominates our culture today. For example, the Bible teaches that humanity has a sin nature and will be accountable to God for sin. Secular humanism and the associated political leanings teaches that sin is not the source of evil. Capitalism, male leadership, poverty, religion, nationalism, guns, these are the source of evil. But we ignore sin. The Bible teaches that the world and nature is created for mankind, for us, for our sake. Secular humanists teach that mankind is just another part of nature that comes and goes. The Bible teaches that mankind is made in the image of God. Liberal secular humanists teach that mankind is purely material, an organism of random life here by total chance. The Bible teaches that the only solution to our sin problem is to repent, to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, and who will return someday to rule the earth in righteousness, while the secular humanist liberals believe themselves inherently good and with no need of a Savior, and in fact with some inherent right to rule the world themselves. Listen, even within cultural Christian circles now, holding up the Bible as the true authority in the church can get you in hot water and accused of being divisive and obtuse and unloving. That as long as we all love Jesus, that's all that matters. What did Jesus say people who love him do? They obey his word. That's what love is, John 14, 15. First benefit of persecution, identification. Let me give you a second benefit of persecution. We'll call this one validation. Validation, verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world, but because you were not of the world, rather, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There's nothing complex about this. There's no deep hidden meaning here. If the world system loves you, is comfortable with you, if you fit into anything that the world loves, then you should be really, really concerned about your salvation status. You should be concerned about whether you know Christ or not. But on the other hand, when you find yourself feeling surrounded by the unrighteous, when you look around at the world and sometimes sense that you don't belong, when you're grieved for the lost souls all around you, when you're put down by your own society for desiring to follow Christ, you are, as Peter said in 1 Peter 2.11, a sojourner and an exile, or more famously in older translations, you are an alien and a stranger in a foreign land. If that's you... And that's validation that you are among those of whom Jesus says, I chose you out of the world. 
that you don't belong here. There's another way the Christian endures persecution in our culture. That's the arena of family. The arena of family. You endure attacks on the family. You endure attacks from your family. You endure attacks on the family. The Bible teaches divine order. Divine order is made up of distinctions. And one of those distinctions is male and female. Just to put this in a whole different realm. If we try to erase all distinctions that God makes, then this is, this is the logical statement. That a star is the same as a comet, is the same as a moon, is the same as a hamburger. And we should just interchange them all. God made distinctions among humanity, male and female. But liberals want to obliterate the male-female distinction because it points clearly to a creator God who made people with those distinctions. The Bible teaches that the definition of a family, the basic unit of society, is a married man who is a father, married to a mother, and they have children and grandchildren. And that's it. The secular humanist, he would mock this structure. They call it oppressive. They call it patriarchal. They even call it abusive. And now there's a constant head turning. Do I look to the world to tell me what my family is to be about? Or do I look to the Bible to tell me what my family is to be about? Which one? And in the arena of family, Christians are attacked even from within their own families. If you believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, which is demonstrated by faithfulness and obedience to the Lord, then you may have problems with your family at times from those who want a kinder, kinder, gentler gospel that doesn't require them to actually follow Christ. And to make up for their guilt over not obeying the Lord, then they have to put you down. Many of you, I know, endure insults and arrogance from family members who say you're narrow, you're ignorant, or you're old-fashioned or closed-minded. Persecution benefits us in the areas of identification, validation. Let me give you a third benefit. Compensation. Compensation. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus is basically saying, however individuals treat me is how they're going to treat you. That's how it's going to work. He is the master, we are the servants. And so if Jesus, our master, is persecuted, then by standing with him, we should expect the same thing. We shouldn't expect anything better. But I wanted to focus for a moment on this little phrase. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Meaning that a person who would have believed in Jesus, if Jesus himself had presented the gospel of salvation, will believe you if you present the gospel of salvation in Christ. That in the midst of persecution, there will be unbelievers who say, I want to be transferred from the world to the kingdom of heaven. I want to be transferred. That's tremendous compensation. That that's, makes all suffering worthwhile. Sometimes among the leadership at Grace Bible Church, we talk about the effort that it takes to put something on, to do something. For example, the Steadfast Bible Conference, all the work that literally over a hundred of you are doing, will it be worth it if one person comes to faith? I think every one of you would say absolutely. Absolutely worth it. 
There will be people in your life and around you who will believe the gospel of Christ. People that from a human standpoint, you're going to bring to heaven with you. I don't think I can think of anything greater. This is why Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What glorious compensation that if just one would come with you for all eternity, how worth it is that? There's another way, another area that you endure persecution in our culture, and that's in the area of sexual perversions. Sexual perversions such as homosexuality, and there's so many different names for it now, you can't even keep up. Gender reassignment. Let's just put it this way. Anything that obliterates what the Bible says about human sexuality. Human sexuality in the Bible is a function of marriage between a man and a woman. Period. Paragraph. That's it. This past spring, I got a chance to do a lecture in the biblical ethics class at the Master's University on this topic, and I tried to outline the history of how the LBGTQ issues have gained ground even in the church. It's just a real brief history. Even just a few years ago, the issue in the evangelical church concerning LBGTQ issues were much more restricted. Mainline liberal denominations began recognizing homosexuality as something they thought was okay, but they had long since denied the biblical gospel, so nobody was really surprised at that. That was a natural outcome of denying the the, the gospel of Christ, denying the authority of Scripture, and so forth. Homosexuals, in general, were fairly anti-gospel, and so they could be easily categorized as spiritually lost and in need of salvation. That that was a no-brainer. And just to be honest... During this time, the church, to its shame, often saw homosexuality, along with things like divorce and adultery, as essentially an unforgivable sin. And so they denied the power of the gospel, and they promoted a what we might call a selective soteriology, and did not reach out to those struggling with the sin of homosexuality, but shunned them instead. But now it's different. Now the insidious nature of the movement has found its way into the church, and even into reform circles. Generally, this is put forward by a very heartfelt, emotional story of the genuine struggle of professing believers in Christ who struggle with what they call same-sex attraction. And that's just one form of sexual immorality. And so now the broadly popular thinking is to redefine scriptural definitions. And here's why. So-and-so is clearly a Christian, and he's clearly gay, So we need to re-examine the Bible. But that's not critical thinking. That's emotionalism. That's using experience to define my theology instead of my theology to define my experience. And the enemies of the gospel now attempt to characterize you as hating the one who practices homosexuality instead of simply believing what the Bible says about homosexuality, that the unrepentant person who continues in homosexual behavior will have no part in the kingdom of heaven. 1 Corinthians 6, that's not us making that up. That's the word of God. And of course now, that makes you what? Homophobic, right? We're not homophobic. We're hellophobic. We're afraid for all who reject Christ and for the eternal judgment that they will endure. Persecution benefits us in the areas of identification, validation, compensation. Let me give you a fourth benefit. We'll call this one representation. 
representation. Verse 21, Jesus continues, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Now remember, persecution is not because you stand for the traditional family. Persecution is not because of you standing for Christian values. Even many non-Christians stand for those things. Persecution is because you stand for and with and on behalf of Christ. Remember, persecution is not about a belief system. It's about a person, the person of Jesus Christ. This is what he says. You're persecuted on account of my name. You're representing Christ on this earth, and therefore persecution happens because the world is hostile toward God. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Remember the parable of the wicked tenants? Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 20 of a man who had a vineyard. He sent a servant to collect what was owed to him by the tenants. They beat the servant. They beat the next servant that got sent. And they beat the next servant that got sent. And so the vineyard owner finally sent his son and the tenants killed him. And of course we understand this is a prediction by Jesus Christ of his own death. But did you notice the place of the servants in this parable? They were sent representing the master, representing the father, representing the son. Jesus said, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, the text doesn't say it directly, but it's a pretty reasonable assumption that if he's going to take the vineyard away from the tenants and give it to someone else, who's he going to give it to? He's probably going to give it to the servants who were beaten on his behalf. It just makes sense. They took a beating representing their master. You're an ambassador. You are a representative of Christ on earth. That's why we constantly talk about Christ-like behavior. Because you represent your Lord. What a privilege. What an honor. That when you, in, in whatever fashion, take a beating, as it were, for the sake of Christ, you represent him. You suffer for him and with him. Another way the Christian endures persecution in our culture is in the arena of education. Education, we're all aware that on liberal college campuses, outspoken Christian students are regularly demeaned, they're targeted, they're called bigots and extremists for their faith in Jesus Christ. But now Christian colleges are being targeted as well, both from within and from without. They're being told to conform to secular ideology or lose their status as being an accredited school. Christian student groups such as InterVarsity Fellowship are being kicked off of campuses while Muslim student groups are being invited with open arms. Teachers are being suspended. They're being fired for voicing their faith. And Christian teachers today live in constant fear of proclaiming their faith. They have to be secretive about living for Christ. By the way, you know what public schools in the United States of America were originally for? The basis for what we know as our public school system today is founded in part on the 1647 School Law of Massachusetts. This was a law that required the teaching, the reading, and the writing of the Bible to children in a school setting. This was based on what was called, you ready for this, the Old Deluder Satan Act. This said that Satan wanted people in ignorance of the scriptures so that they would remain in spiritual bondage so we better teach all of our children to be able to read, write, and and recite the Bible. Now, not only is the Bible not defended in public schools, 
It's put down as denigrated, and frankly, it's not even defended in most Christian schools where now we must edit and we must censor certain parts of the Bible because, heaven forbid, we go against our culture. And children are paying the price of confusion and being pulled in multiple directions by the world. Persecution benefits us in the area of identification, validation, compensation, representation. Let me give you another benefit. We'll call this one appreciation. Appreciation, verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus came to earth as the the greatest visible manifestation of God ever, as he is God in the flesh. He came to his own people, but the overall response was negative. John 12, 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now, Jesus isn't saying here that if he hadn't come, people wouldn't be responsible for their sin. But they could technically say that God had not done all that he could to reveal himself. He hadn't come in the flesh. But when Jesus came, the very person of God walking on the earth, face to face with you and teaching you the gospel, now they're without excuse. And those who continue in their unbelief become the persecutors of those who will believe Now, I know we'd all like to think that if we had lived in the time of Christ, well, of course we would have believed and followed him. Of course, we would be the ones shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. We never would have said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now, that's just fanciful speculation, but there's one thing I am glad of. I am glad that when I was told that Jesus Christ came to earth, God coming as a man, yet fully God, That by the Spirit of God, by God's mercy, by God's grace, He allowed me to believe. And I appreciate that. Our appreciation of salvation ought to be heightened by those poor angry souls around us who would be our persecutors. And yet, short of repenting and coming to faith in Christ, they will pay for all eternity. Those angry liberals who worship the government, who worship evolution and humanism, how terrible it will be for them when they face the very one that they have persecuted. Because remember, when you persecute Christians, you persecute Christ. Remember what Jesus told Saul? When Saul was persecuting Christians, Jesus confronted Saul on the road to Damascus, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The one who persecutes Christians is persecuting Christ. And at some point, though not in such dramatic fashion, Jesus made himself known to you and you submitted to the Lordship of Christ just as Saul did. And so persecution gives us appreciation. We thank the Lord that those who seem the most powerful in the world now will bend the knee naked and ashamed before God shortly before he casts them into the lake of fire. And they deserve nothing except our pity and our prayers. Speaking of which, another way the Christian endures persecution in our culture is in the arena of politics. Can you picture this? I'm running for public office and I'm going to make it well known that I am a born-again Christian that believes the Bible. You know what they call that today? They call that political suicide. You can't get elected. 
In fact, more and more, a substantive faith in Jesus Christ is being characterized by secular humanists as some sort of mental illness. Biblical Christianity is seen increasingly as a disqualifying factor in politics. As a matter of fact, there's a growing belief that being a Christian means that you don't have the brain power to be a politician or a leader. I'm not sure what the IQ factor for a politician is. That's another subject for another day. But there is a growing belief that being a Christian means that you are not as smart as others. You want to know how I know this? Because at the highest levels, liberal universities now are trying to make scientific studies to prove this. The American Sociological Association published an article called, quote, Why Liberals and Atheists Are More Intelligent, unquote written by a London college professor. And the basic hypothesis is that intelligence tests can predict that the more intelligent you are, the more likely you are to espouse liberalism and atheism because a belief in God indicates that your evolution has stalled. As a matter of fact, in one of this author's studies, she found that atheists, on average, are six whole IQ points higher in intelligence than those who call themselves religious. You know what I say to that? I say, well, I already knew that. Because 1 Corinthians 1 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We've often joked that the average local church of Jesus Christ is basically a collection of all the weirdos that society didn't want. And God saves us. And so now to run for political office and to openly proclaim faith in Christ, that's political suicide because of the venom and the hatred that the world has toward you. Persecution benefits us in the areas of identification, validation, compensation, representation, appreciation. Here's another benefit. We'll call this one dedication. Dedication, verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. I don't think Jesus could be saying this more plainly. What you think of Jesus is what you think of God. It's that simple. If you say that Jesus was just a good man, you are denigrating the very deity of God. If you say Jesus was a radical extremist, then you're insulting the very God who made you. If you say that Jesus should have no say in your lifestyle, then you're telling God, get out of my business. But to state this in the positive, whoever loves Christ loves the Father also. Our love for God is dedicatedly Trinitarian. If you're dedicated to Christ, then by default, you are categorized as the one who loves God. In fact, let's go back to the parable of the wicked tenant. Again, in Luke 20, if we could use our sanctified imagination for a moment. What if the tenants had not been wicked? And when the son of the master came to visit, instead of killing him, they had a banquet in his honor. And they they thanked him for his kindness and for visiting them. What would the vineyard owner the father of the son, what would he have concluded? That the tenants love him. Because to love the son is to love the father. And by enduring persecution for the sake of Christ, you are enduring persecution for the sake of the father. 
That is the benefit of dedication. You are assured of your dedication to the Lord. So another way the Christian endures persecution in our culture is in the arena of Islam. Islam is the fastest growing religion on earth. Every one of you got nervous when I just said the word, didn't you? Because we're, we have it jammed down our throat that that is a politically protected religion. What's the theology of Islam? Basically, the theology of Islam says that humanity is born spiritually neutral. That a person is able to obey Allah's requirements perfectly. And so humanity's need is not a savior, but humanity needs instruction. So Islam has no savior, just prophets, just teachers. Substitutionary atonement is unnecessary. They do believe in Jesus, but he was a sinless human, in their view, who was miraculously taken to heaven before being crucified, and that his likeness, his face, was miraculously transferred to some other guy who died in his place. So actually, Jesus had somebody die for him. But now, if you disagree with the theology of Islam, you're labeled Islamophobic. And according to our culture, that is a big no-no. We're not Islamophobic. Islam, like any false religion, will land you straight in hell. And so Muslims need salvation through Jesus Christ. And what I love is by God's grace, heaven will be populated by many, many, many former Muslims who rejected their false faith and were saved by the faith, their faith in Jesus Christ. Because Allah is not the Muslim name for God. Allah doesn't exist, except perhaps for the demonic forces who would impersonate a false god. And now Islam has become the new politically protected religion, while Christians are treated as nutcase third-class citizens still. Persecution benefits us in the areas of identification, validation, compensation, representation, appreciation, Dedication, I saved my favorite for last because the text saved my favorite for last. Confirmation. Confirmation. Don't you want to know you're going to heaven? I want to know that. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Why does the world hate Christ? The world hates Christ because he exposes their sin. He confronts the world with the reality that he alone is the way to right standing with God. And here, Jesus applies to himself a prophecy from Psalm 35, verse 19, and from Psalm 69, verse 4. Both of those are psalms of Jesus' ancestor, King David. David cried out to God that his enemies were hating him without cause. And what Jesus is saying here, he's saying that he is... This is most perfectly fulfilled in himself that if David, a mere man who is a sinner, could be hated by his enemies without cause, how much more the sinless Son of God who irritates humanity with his perfection and his claims. There is no reason to not love Christ. There is nothing about Christ to cause disdain for him. He's the sinless Son of God, the one who will judge the living and the dead at the end, And the fact that you're willing to undergo persecution for his sake is confirmation of something. It's very simple. That you're on the right side. That you've sided with the one who is sinless and who is perfect and who is holy and who will return. 
The unholy hates being around the holy. Don't think that people in hell will be sitting around wishing they could be with God. They will be with God. They will just be with the face of the wrath of God for all eternity. But the unbeliever abhors the idea of the presence of God. But you who have been credited as righteous in Christ, you've been united to God through him, and it's your greatest wish to be in your presence. What, what precious confirmation that you're on the side of heaven, that you're on the side of the sinless Son of God. There's another way the Christian endures persecution in our culture, perhaps the most insidious way today. And that is in the arena of pseudo-Christian apostasy. Pseudo-Christian apostasy. Those wildly popular movements which happen using all the right words, much of the right theology, but they're so subtle in their deception that many fall prey to their allure, usually by the millions. And then those of you who speak out to family and to friends with your concern, you're characterized as mean-spirited, divisive, or even evil. And right now, one of the dangerous, most dangerous and cultish movements happening is the New Apostolic Reformation. And of course, the Bethel Church of Reading is the poster child for that movement. Bethel Church of Reading was featured by Fox News this week as the greatest new thing in Christianity. But this is massively deceptive. Senior Pastor Bill Johnson wrote in his article, wrote in this article, The main thing, I'm quoting him, the main thing is simple devotion for Jesus Christ, which is essentially what we want Bethel to be known for. That sounds so good. Doesn't that sound alluring? Well, yes, of course we agree with that, Bill. Problem. In Johnson's book, When Heaven Invades Earth, A Practical Guide to a Life of Miracles, Johnson says that Jesus, quote, laid aside his divinity as he sought to fulfill the assignment given to him by the Father. He just said that when Jesus came to earth, he was no longer God. And since Jesus was merely a man and not God while on earth, according to Johnson, that means all the miracles that Jesus did, he did solely as a man. Now, why would they promulgate that theology? So they can tell you that you can be just like Jesus and you can have all the miracles that he had. By the way, how many miracles did Jesus ever do for himself? Zero. This is nothing more than a twisted Christology to sue the man-centered selfish desire. By the way, Bill Johnson teaches that Jesus needed to be born again, implying that not only was he only a man, but he needed redemption as well. That doesn't even cover the mass of heresies concerning God the Father, who is presented primarily by Johnson as an impersonal power. All the heresies concerning God the Holy Spirit who Bill Johnson claims that he can release into a ministry situation. And in fact, he describes the Holy Spirit as, quote, a substance to release, much as you would giving somebody a drug. Bethel is tampering with and undermining the very foundations of the person of God and his son and his spirit, and he's presenting a God that does not exist. You need to understand the God that Bethel presents doesn't exist. That God is right there alongside Allah. And those things don't even address the wildly charismatic theology that every true Christian should receive physical healing. Doesn't address their holy laughter 
It doesn't address the music money-making machine that has at times outdone top-selling secular artists and funneled that money back to Bethel. Listen, stop buying Jesus culture music. Stop it. It doesn't even address the practice of necromancy, of trying to, as Bill Johnson says, quote, recover realms of anointing, realms of insight, realms of God that have been untended for decades simply by choosing to reclaim them. What does he mean? Reclaiming the anointing of dead preachers from the past. That's necromancy, forbidden by Scripture. And all of that doesn't address the arrogant, I've got something you haven't got stance. One supporter of Bill Johnson writes, quote, Bill Johnson's teachings are for those who have a deeper relationship with the Lord. Those who fellowship with God from the outer court won't understand it, meaning us. We're the poor slobs who don't get it. Interestingly, Bethel often uses their own personal Bible translation. It's called the Passion Translation, created by one sole translator, Brian Simmons, And there's so much new material that the Passion Translation is 50% longer than the original. For example, Psalm 18.1 in our good old English Standard Version says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Pretty simple. The Passion Translation says, Lord, I passionately love you. I want to embrace you, for now you've become my power. That's twisted. That's wrong. In fact, some of the most prominent real Bible translators in the world have evaluated the Passion Translation as, quote, not just a new translation, it is a new text. And its authority derives solely from its creator. Like Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, Brian Simmons has created a new scripture with the potential to rule as the standard over a new sect. Just a few months ago in England, A representative of Bethel Church spoke in a local church to a crowd of about 400 members. And in England, that means it's a mega church. It's a big church. A man stood up to warn the church of this dangerous movement. Not only was he booed, but he was physically thrown out of the building. Part of the conflict was over the huge emphasis on prophecy to the denigration of the Bible. Johnson said on one occasion that Christians make too much of the Bible. He said, quote, it's not the Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And on multiple occasions, he denigrates Scripture. As a matter of fact, the Bethel Church is very, very intentional. They specifically target young people. The least able to defend their faith or know how they're being deceived. They do it with the Jesus culture music, which is geared to create an emotionally manipulative atmosphere for teens and young adults and to be emotionally way more exciting than boring things like hearing the Word of God preached and taught and applied. One of Jesus' culture in Bethel's mega-hit songs, Reckless Love, this song portrays God as spontaneously deciding to save humanity at the cross without knowing the outcome. Very similar to someone rushing into a burning building to save someone. It sounds good, but is God's love reckless? Does Scripture ever describe God as reckless? No, the plan of salvation is characterized in many ways, intentional, planned, deliberate, specific, costly, but never reckless. And you say, oh, you're just splitting hairs. It's just a song. Well, we better split hairs because no one else is going to. Singing an emotional song about God's reckless love, it denigrates God because it uses terms that are unfamiliar to Scripture. And now it attempts to create a hero worship response instead of accurately portraying the gospel. And this makes its way into the minds of young people 
and young listeners, and it begins to crowd out the actual truth. Their song, Holy Spirit, highlights the lyric, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. It goes on to emotionally plead for a, a, a mystical experience. We want to be overcome by your presence, Lord. And sometimes, by the way, when Bethel wants to really help the Holy Spirit along, they blow fake gold dust through their ventilation system or drop feathers from the ceiling. They're supposedly angels' hairs. And nobody suspects them of fraud. You've got to be kidding me. Is there not one guy in there going, all right, I don't believe this. This is a heretical, unbiblical view of the Spirit of God. We're telling the Spirit of God what to do and that He is some sort of gaseous substance that fills the room like oxygen, nitrogen, or helium. The truth is is that the Holy Spirit is the sovereign God of the universe and He does not need your invitation anywhere. These songs are meant to create an emotional response and it's addictive in nature. It makes the worshiper feel that he or she is having an encounter with God. And suddenly the young people who toyed with Bethel are sucked in, much to the disbelief of their parents. The Bethel church movement, the Bethel music movement has separated teenagers from their parents theologically. What happens when you play with fire? You get burned. So what do we do with this? Second John 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Well, I, I think we can sort of come alongside, not according to John, because you're helping them. You download one song from Bethel, that $1.29 goes straight to a cult. And for doing nothing more than standing for a biblical view of the Trinity, a biblical view of salvation, you are called divisive and unloving. I think to try to pull people from the grip of Satan is the most loving thing we can do. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, I hear that there are divisions among you, And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. We stand for the true and living God as revealed in Scripture and Scripture alone, regardless of the cost, regardless of the loss. So someone might say, well, there really isn't persecution in America. Well, then go say or go publish just these seven areas that I've highlighted. Because our culture and our world hates all that Christ stands for. And now we've been programmed by the media, we've been programmed by our culture to get nervous about saying these things aloud. Let's just stick it to them. Let's say it all at once. Dare we say the Bible is the only holy word of God and is the source of all spiritual life and authority and any authority that you show to me is bogus if it isn't scripture? That the family is made up of a married man and his wife and their children and grandchildren is ordained by God. And that sexuality, other than in the context of marriage between a man and a woman, is considered worthy of hell by God. 
and that almost all educational systems hate God, hate Jesus, hate the gospel, and will do everything in their power to turn children to a wicked, evolutionary, secular, humanistic system, that Christians are the most hated holders of public office, that all the so-called tolerant people would just as soon see Christians wiped off the face of the earth. How about this? Allah is dead, not great. He is no God at all. Belief in Allah is idolatry for which eternal punishment in hell will be required. Salvation for the Muslim is possible only through Christ and renouncing the idolatry of Islam. And pseudo-Christian apostasy is so serious that the Bible ends with a crescendo of warnings to get away from these men, to get away from these false teachers, to get away from those movements. We're to get away from them. We're to cry out to those we love to get away from it. We're to stop associating with them. We're to warn, we're to warn, we're to warn because those movements are bringing hell into what used to be called churches. Well, now that I've made a lot of new friends, let's kind of land this plane here for a moment. You don't belong here, and neither do I, do you? You are aliens and strangers. This world is not our home. It's hostile to you because it's hostile to Christ. So what do you do? I know you. I know, I know you so well, and I, I've loved being here approaching seven years at Grace Bible Church. And so I know you. I know your heart to live for Christ. But persecution is hard, so what do you do? The church at Smyrna was being persecuted and they had the privilege we read earlier of receiving a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He encourages them in Revelation 2 verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. There's three little lessons that we could glean from the Lord's encouragement on how to endure persecution Lesson number one, be brave. Be brave. He said, do not fear what you're about to suffer. This is simply the element of deciding to trust Christ and trust the Lord without fear of consequences. Why does the professing Christian falter? Because we look to the left, we look to the right, and we fear what others think. Be brave. Lesson number two, watch the calendar. Watch the calendar. Jesus said that there would be tribulation for 10 days, whether that's speaking of a literal 10 days or speaking metaphorically of a really long time. In either case, there is a final day of suffering. Jesus said it's temporary. So watch the calendar. If you knew which day it was, you could look ahead and you could write in last day of persecution. And lesson number three, look to the victory. Look to the victory. Jesus said, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The closer you are to death, the closer you are to victory. That's how you endure. Be brave. Watch the calendar. Look to the victory. And if you've made a profession of faith in Christ, but you have no intention or desire to stand for what Christ stands for, then you should have no confidence in your faith at all. But if you're determined to stand for and with Christ, Jesus encourages the true believers in Christ in Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, as much as we try to predict, we 
we tend to look at our own news sources and think that it seems that persecution is getting worse. In our particular context, it has not been overt. It's been very subtle. But as we begin to look at all the ways that it's subtle, we see that the foundation of security from a worldly standpoint is, is quickly crumbling. That there's no place left to stand except with you. And so, Lord God, we pray this morning for courage. We pray that you would help us to be brave. We pray that you would help us to watch the calendar. We pray that you would help us to look to the victory. I know that in every one of those arenas in which persecution is happening, Lord, there are many, many more, but I chose those in particular because I know an example of each one of those in our church today. And so I pray for their encouragement as they stand for you. I pray for their encouragement to live a life that is pleasing to God and to God alone, thinking about what no one else thinks. Lord, should you choose to tarry and should persecution in our particular context get worse, we trust you to use that as a purifying influence that you would empty the churches of the fake and you would fill the churches with new converts and that you would use it as a purifier in our culture. Lord, we do not belong here, but in the meantime, you have given us a mission to go and to proclaim the gospel to all, to teach them to obey what you have commanded. And I would pray, Lord, for a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who is here today who does not know Jesus Christ and who is on the wrong side of the sinless Son of God, that the Son of God is still his judge. Might they come to faith this very day, this very moment, so that the Son of God might be his Savior and might bring him from the world into the kingdom of heaven. We pray to be faithful, Lord. Help us to endure to the end so that Christ might be honored and glorified. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.